Hello and welcome to the Emerging Litigation Podcast. He said enthusiastically, it's not my natural, it's not my nature to be that enthusiastic about anything. But, uh, you know, I'm rallying for my, uh, for my listeners. I'm Tom Hagee. I'm with HB Litigation Conferences. I'm also founder of Custom Legal Content. It's my newer venture where I apply my content creation and litigation loving skills to create stuff for lawyers and companies all in the legal space. This podcast is a collaboration between my company and Fastcase and Law Street Media. Fastcase is a legal research service, up and coming, knocking it out of the park. Also have Docket Alarm. And I'm a big fan of Docket Alarm. I like to go there anytime I've got to find a decision, a case, a complaint, the brief. I don't know. I find it easy to navigate. I just do. And uh, I'm sure they give you free trials. But anyway, check that out. And Law Street Media, I'm a big fan of that. And uh, Legal News, I really like. And I like the way they're doing things over there. So check out those guys, my collaborators, my conspirators, members of my cabal. Um, yeah, that's, that's an exaggeration. What are we going to talk about today? You know, in case you were looking for something uh, terrifying, something new and terrifying, or an additional terrifying thing to add to your list of terrifying things. I give you the North American wildfires, the National Interagency Fire Center in Boise, Idaho. And that is how you say it. I lived in Idaho for a while, up in the Panhandle. It's beautiful up there. Anyway, the National uh, Interagency Fire Center in Boise, they reported that in 2010, okay, and that was 11 years ago, for those of you uh, checking my maths, uh, there were 72,000 fires in the United States. It burned uh, 3.4 million acres. Last year, that's 2020, there were 59,000 fires, okay? Uh, so, you know what? Fewer. But you know what? They burned over 10 million acres, okay? So 3.4 in, in 2010 to 10, over 10 million in 2020. So, I, you know, I'm not studying this, but off the top of my head, I'm thinking, you know, well, there were fewer fires, but they were bigger ones. Well, you know, <laughs> if they're taking up more space, there's not as much room to burn. Um, but that's probably inaccurate. But that's, anyway, there's a lot of fires and a lot, a lot more intense, a lot more uh, bigger fires. Let's put it that way. 10 million acres. That is the equivalent of all of New Jersey, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. Regardless of what you may think of those states, they're all fine states. You wouldn't want them all burned up, would you? So that's a lot of acres. And we're talking about destruction of homes, uh, mass evacuations, a lot of injuries, sadly, uh, death. Um, and, and if that's not enough, it also has led to nationwide air pollution. Travels all the way from the West Coast to New York and up into Canada. Not to be outdone in 2021. We had some big fires also. Uh, the big fires were like the bootleg fire in Oregon, which burned over 400,000 acres. Take, took about 2,000 firefighters and other personnel to combat that. It was started by lightning, so natural causes there. I have a daughter in Oregon. She got to breathe some of that smoke. Who would have thought I'd be sending my kid a NIOSH approved smoke mask as a gift. Wouldn't have predicted that. And let's see, I was adding to your list of things to be afraid of. 
Um, I give you fire clouds. There was a July report by CBS about the bootleg fire. And you've heard this kind of thing before. The wildfire was large enough to create its own weather. So it's it, uh, included in these fire weather systems. You've got these special clouds with these frightening names, pyrocumulus clouds. And then they're also, another name for them is, let me see if I can say it, flumogenitus? Flum, flumogenitis? Sounds like the worst rash ever. Flumogenitis. The flumogenitis. I don't know. I'm saying that incorrectly. There's a guy in my uh, building who uh, majored in Latin. I'll ask him and maybe I'll have proper pronunciation of it. But let's just call them, let me just call them fire clouds. Is that terrifying? Let's see, I looked it up in Wikipedia. I'm a big fan of Wikipedia these days. They contain severe turbulence that manifest as strong gusts at the surface, which can exacerbate a large conflagration. That's a fire. A large flumogenitis, particularly one flumogenitis. Flumogenitis. I'm saying it right. I'm saying it that way anyway. A large flumogenitis, uh, particularly one associated with a volcanic eruption, that's not our problem here today, fortunately, may also produce lightning. I'm going to put a picture of one of these fire clouds uh, in the show notes so you can take a look. Oh, so rivaling fire clouds is uh, in, in, this, in this particular horror film are fire tornadoes. Okay, let's talk about the Dixie Fire, another one. Uh, let's see, that was about 180 acre. 180 acre, right? 180,000 acres. There was a good write-up in the New York Times about the, the Dixie Fire. Set up a command center. They wrote at the Lassen County Fairgrounds. They said it looked like a small town that sprung up overnight. Filled with offices and, and trailers. Catering stations, fueling areas, laundry services, sleeping tents, and parking spots. So this is, this is a hell of a jobs program. They had... 569 fire engines, 194 water trucks at their peak in August, 200 bulldozers, more than a thousand miles of fire hose. That's a lot of fire hose. At the height of the operation, the New York Times wrote there were over 6,500 people working around the clock to battle the Dixie Fire. And that's just two of them. You had the Snake River Complex Fire in Idaho, the Lick Creek or Dry Gulch Fire in Oregon and Washington. The Tamarack Fire in Nevada and on and on. So a lot of fires. What's causing these? There was a good story in Vox in September to make uh, to make these more expensive, both for people and for insurance companies. People are building closer to wildland areas. The article says that means that when fires do occur, they cause more damage to homes and businesses. That proximity also means that humans are more likely to spark new infernos. The vast majority of wildfires are ignited by people, Vox reports, up to 84%. And that can be through errant sparks, downed power lines, or arson. So that's people for you. And if you're looking for another reason to uh, blame white men for destruction of the planet, here's one. Let's see, for hundreds of years, people suppressed naturally occurring fires. European settlers, there's the white men, also halted cultural burning practices from the indigenous people of the region, according to the Vox article. Stopping these smaller fires has allowed forest, grasslands, and chaparral to grow much denser than they would otherwise. Paradoxically, that means more fuel is available to burn when fires do occur, causing blazes to spread farther and faster 
according to the Vox article. So, plenty of blame to go around. And since, as usual, that's all I know about the issue, I'm fortunate to have Ed Diab as my guest. Ed Diab is founding partner at Dixon, Diab, and Chambers. He leads the firm's mass tort practice. In his role, he litigates cases on behalf of individuals and public entities that have sustained damages as a result of utility-caused fires. And has, has negotiated over $1.36 billion in settlements on behalf of his clients. In 2019, Ed was part of a team that negotiated a historic $1 billion settlement on behalf of 14 public utilities for taxpayer losses caused by the 2015 Butte Fire, the 2017 North Bay Fires, and the 2018 Campfire. Representative clients include the County of Sonoma, counties of Napa, County of Butte, the Town of Paradise. They sustained, or sustained, severe damage as a result of fires alleged to have been caused by Pacific Gas and Electric Company. There you go. Five months later, in November 2019, the same team negotiated a $360 million settlement on behalf of 23 public entities for taxpayer losses caused by the 2017 Thomas Fire slash mudslides. There you go. Fire and mudslides. There's a day for you. And the 2018 Woolsey Fire. Ed Diab and uh, his firm, Dixon, Diab and Chambers, do a lot of their work with the national law firm of Barron and Bud. Speaking of Barron and Bud, I want to thank Scott Summy for introducing me to Ed. Good call, Scott. I appreciate it. I enjoyed talking to, uh, to Ed about litigation in this space. Had a good discussion, and I think I'll just jump right into it. So here is my conversation with Ed Diab of Dixon, Diab and Chambers on wildfire litigation. Hope you enjoy it. Ed Diab, welcome to the Emerging Litigation Podcast, and thank you for doing this today. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. It's an honor and a pleasure to, to be with you today. So let's uh, jump right into the first question. We're talking about wildfires, and nobody can miss those. They're in the news. And I have friends, I have a daughter in Oregon and a friend in Montana, and they've been breathing some of the smoke that has, has come from from California. It's incredible. And even here in Pennsylvania, we get uh, warnings about the air quality because of the, of the wildfire. So it's, it's, uh, it's destroying homes. Sadly, it's injured and killed some people. Uh, and it's also doing some things to the air quality thousands of miles away. Um, could you just give me kind of an overview along those lines? What's the scope of the wildfire problem in North America, are we seeing more of them? Yeah, you know, I think that, um, you know, wildfires are part of nature, right? That's sort of how nature naturally restores itself. Um, over the last maybe 10 or 15 years, what we have seen, however, is the increase in both the severity and the frequency of them. Um, and so, you know, if you look to the science and sort of try to understand, well, why is this happening, whether it's here, Australia is another uh, area that, you know, experiences wildfires, as we saw. Um, and, you know, not to get political or anything like that, but there is a climate change issue. Um, and each year, you know, statistically, just looking at the facts, um, the planet's getting hotter. Um, and, and more specifically, California is getting hotter at least at a rate that's maybe outpacing um, the average. So I think, you know, there's a National Geographic article out there that says that the earth is getting hotter by about, you know, call it just shy of two degrees a year. 
Um, where California, the last 10 years, I believe, uh, has been about three degrees a year. You know, it doesn't seem like a big sort of shift, but it's enough to make an impact, um, especially when you combine that with less rainfall, um, which we see here. Um, you know, on the other side of the political spectrum, forest management. I mean, there's only a limited amount of resources that we've got um, as a state to kind of do that. We've got sort of different plant communities that are that are shifting. So the short answer is, I think it's a it's a con- conflation of a bunch of different factors that are coming together to unfortunately create this perfect storm where now we're seeing, you know, increased severity. Um, it's, own, it's creating its own weather patterns. I mean, just the stuff that that's unprecedented. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of a shame that you even have to mention uh, that it's, you don't mean to get political when you mention climate change. I mean, it's just, uh, it is, it, it's kind of a, it's a theme with some of the things I do that, you know, at some point it's not political. Uh, there are just some people who don't believe it. And, um, and uh, I mean, you don't have to weigh into it, weigh into it, but it just, it does make things complicated when you're, when you see a problem like COVID, you're saying, okay, well, here are the solutions. Well, we don't want to do those things. So that's a whole different podcast. And uh, But I do think that, uh, I think there are going to be liabilities separate and apart from all these that are either made worse or are new because of these political uh, divides we have. Um, I think we that's right. I mean, I yeah. think that, you know, the, the, the beauty, I guess, of some of this stuff is that it's objective data, right? So you don't have to fight the reason behind it. I don't care what the reason behind the sort of increasing temperatures are, less rainfall, whatever. Those right. are just simple facts. And so right. uh, I think you're spot on in terms of the, the increased sort of severity and damages arising from it, not, you know, because of the bleed into the politics of it, um, which is unfortunate. Great. Okay. Um, let's see. So how, how are these fires typically starting? Um, the ones that get into litigation, because again, we can sort of parse out the fact that there's naturally occurring fires, you know, we see lightnings or cause fires all the time, but the ones that we're talking about and dealing with in litigation here, uh, particularly in California, um, are generally, as we allege, started by, um, privately owned public utility companies. So essentially people, uh, the companies that provide uh, power to California, um, in general, we're, we're, we're typically dealing with a couple different varieties of how these start. There's obviously more nuanced sort of ways that these things can go. But in general, we're talking about two simple things. One, um, you sort of have a high wind event um, that causes the, the, the lines. You know, there's uh, on a power distribution line, sometimes there'll be three lines. And these lines are some, not always insulated. Some of these are very old infrastructure. Um, and so when the wind blows, these lines sort of slap together um, and that causes an arcing event, which is essentially a spark. Um, that spark will then drop down if, if there's enough of it into um, into the ground where there's some dry vegetation. And typically, because you're talking about such high voltage lines, we're talking about, you know, 12,000 volts or even more in certain, if you're talking about distribution lines. Um, then some molten metal will even drop down and it's obviously extremely hot and will spark a fire. So that's sort of, you know, big, big bubble, uh, big sort of thing. Number one that causes these fires. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one is again, same thing. Um, usually high wind event, although sometimes, um, it's just sort of a, a tree that that's died over time just because it's, it's become rotten inside and, and maybe hasn't been inspected properly as we've alleged. Um, and the tree falls into a power line, causing basically the same thing. Another, you know, common term short circuit type thing 
where you have a spark uh, and then it's off and running again with all the reasons we just talked about with the, the dry vegetation um, and all that. So those are the two, I would say, sort of biggest ways that we see, uh, at least in recent years, in terms of how these fires have started. Okay. So it's to some extent, we'll get into the into the causes of action, but in, in terms of the cause of the fires, I guess, generally speaking, what we're saying, it sounds lot like a maintenance issue. Um, a big electric company, you've got millions of millions of wi- uh, miles of cables, wires, and things to maintain, and the landscape is constantly changing. Trees are growing, trees are dying and falling. Um, so a lot of it, would you say, comes down to maintenance? I think that's right. And, you know, I try to be fair to, to our friends on the other side of this issue. Um, you know, our practice here with Baron and Bud and my firm, Dixon Diab and Chambers, um, we represent public entities in these fires. We represent, I believe it's over 60 now. And so our clients are sort of in a unique position in that, um, you know, there's obviously individual homeowners and we can kind of get to, you know, who suffers from these fires, but the public entities, the counties, the cities, the districts, um, they have a partnership with these utility companies because they have to work with them to provide power to their constituents and sort of groups. Um, so while, you know, litigation does have some animosity and, and all that stuff, mm-hmm. um, we approach it a little differently. And, and to be fair to my colleagues on the other side, uh, they do as well. I think we've got a, we've got a working relationship where we sort of have a big problem to solve when these fires devastate these towns um, and I think we've been able to, to help work out sort of positive resolutions for them, um, you know, in terms of being able to, to figure out a way to, to get c- communities compensated and sort of back up on their feet. Gotcha. So what are the, excuse me, what are the, um, so who are your, uh, your plaintiffs? Who are your clients? So generally speaking, in these fires, you've got three large groups of plaintiffs. Um, the first is the one I just mentioned, which is our clients, uh, Baron and Bud and Dixon Diab and Chambers. We typically represent the public entities. Um, we've been fortunate and have the honor and privilege of representing uh, almost every single county, city, special district that's been affected by the fires since the 2017 North Bay fires. Um, and so that, that's sort of the one big bucket. Uh, the second big bucket, and obviously uh, the one that you know people sort of um, rightfully so worry about the most, are the individual plaintiffs. You know, the people who are homeowners who have lost their homes um, in the camp fire. You had something like you know over ten thousand homes were lost in that fire. So you've got that group of plaintiffs, and and, and mind you, a, a big asterisk there too is is folks that have lost their lives. We've had well over 100 deaths the last few years from these fires. So there is sort of that tragic personal injury component to it as well. Um, and then the third group is a lesser known group, um, but one that obviously has a, a huge stake in these cases, which are the insurance companies. Um, and they bring their action under what's called a subrogation action. Um, so in essence, you know, if my home burns in a fire, my insurance company theoretically pays me uh, whatever it costs to replace my home. Um, but that insurance company then has the right to go after a third-party tortfeasor and say, hey, I had to pay Ed you know, X number of dollars to rebuild his home. That was your fault, and so you should pay us back. And so these three groups, um, really for the last 10, 15, 20 years now in, in these wildfire cases, have for the most part worked really well together um, because we are talking about sort of us going against um, you know, a large public utility on the other side. Um, and so it's in everyone's interest to kind of work together, make sure that the individuals, you know, almost first and foremost, get taken care of 
uh, the cities and communities as well as well as you know the the businesses that that have paid uh, for these losses. In, in the context of a of a mass in mass tort litigation, I'm trying to think of a time when the plaintiffs um, were. Um, where this has happened, where the where a plaintiff firm like yours is represents insurance companies. Uh, I know it's subrogation, but I'm trying to think if that's ever happened before in mass torts. I just don't feel like it has, but maybe, maybe you know think, something. You know, uh, our firm, again, typically represents the public entities and individuals. I've done subrogation work in, the, in my past. Um, you know, I'm, the, the only other situation from a mass tort standpoint are things like where products repeatedly fail. Let's say there's a product that causes fires, whether it's a TV or refrigerator in you know a million people's homes. Right. And it can be found that that product manufacturer was liable for it. Right. Um, you may have you might have insurance companies that band together and file a mass tort. Um, so those are the only other contexts that at least come sort of fresh to mind. OK. Um, and then the defendants, you, you've talked about who in this, in these cases, you're talking about the utilities. Yeah. The, the, the primary defendants in these cases are the privately owned uh, public utility companies. Um, these are in California, at least the, the big ones are Southern California Edison, um, PG&E, uh, which folks have heard about. Um, there's some smaller public utilities here as well. Um, and then on top of that, as I mentioned with sort of the uh, potential liability from vegetation management, things like that. Um, you do get tree trimming companies. You know, our allegations are you didn't trim the, uh, the tree properly, and that's what allowed the branch to fall into the line. Um, there's also tree sort of maintenance companies, and, and their responsibility is to go around essentially and try to um, identify trees that are prone to failure. Um, you know, and these are very highly skilled arborists and experts who understand, you know, uh, you and I might not be able to tell, but they certainly can in terms of when it looks like a tree within a stand looks like it's about to fail. Mm -hmm. um, and to your earlier point, you know, there are millions of miles of lines uh, to be maintained and, and sort of the rub of these cases are, well, uh, utility company, you've been given a monopoly by the state of California to operate as a privately owned public utility um, and so there's there's options, right? Um, San Diego Gas and Electric, um, down where I live, uh, has done a what we think is a pretty admirable job in terms of undergrounding a lot of these power lines. That obviously is expensive. It cuts against the bottom line, and I think that's where you're seeing the rub of you know why, why I keep saying privately owned public utility. You know they they have uh, shareholders to report to and profits to make and things like that. Which you know we're in America that that's okay, uh, but it's it's just where sort of that starts to cut against um, the interests of the community as a whole. And we've seen these devastating fires last few years. Right. Right. Um, what, what causes of action do you bring these cases under? Um, there's a multitude of causes of action that we use in these cases. Um, you know, there's certainly negligence. There's certainly trespass, nuisance, things like that. The one that sort of, um, gets people is something that's unique to California. And I believe maybe one or two other states in the United States is it's a concept called inverse condemnation. Um, and that's been the subject of a lot of attention the last few years, um, even up in Sacramento. Um, and that cause of action is sort of unique uh, because it's a, it's an extremely powerful tool that we have as litigators 
Um, it's one that, um, you know, is, is quasi binary. Um, it's really look, look, if, if a public utilities equipment uh, as deliberately designed and constructed, meaning sort of the way that it was uh, meant to operate, caused a fire, um, then they're liable for it. Um, so long as we can obviously show that, you know, it, it was a, it had a factor in terms of um, causing the actual spread of the fire and things like that. Um, and the underpinning, it's actually a constitutional cause of action. Article 1, Section 19 of the, the California Constitution is where sort of the underpinning is. Um, and, you know, to my friends on the other side who, who represent the utility companies, um, you know, they will say things like, well, um, you know, this is unfair. It's quasi strict liability. Um, but the, the sort of fundamental belief behind why California supports this cause of action um, is because you are a public utility. You've been granted a monopoly. Um, it's not like some other company can privately compete for power. Um, and so because of that, we're going to treat you like a public entity. Um, and therefore, you've got sort of this, this exposure. Um, the utilities will say, well, we don't have the same direct taxing power as a public entity. Um, we have this whole ratepayer process, so we can't spread the losses and things like that. But thus far, at least for the last 20 plus years, um, California courts have consistently held that privately owned public utilities are liable um, under inverse condemnation. Um, and then I'd say the other sort of big one is there's some health and safety stat code statutes in California um, that allow for the recovery of fire suppression costs, uh, as, as the news will tell you and, and, and common sense will say. Uh, these fires are extremely costly from a fire suppression standpoint. And so there are statutes that allow uh, the public entities and, and Cal Fire and things like that to recover their costs. Okay. Gotcha. So what, uh, what defenses uh, do you, are, are they coming back with? You know, liabilities fought really hard. Um, you've got some of the best lawyers in the country, um, you know, defending the utilities. Um, and especially I'd say in years past, um, you know, proving that that the equipment started the fire uh, requires a team of experts, um, cause and origin experts, first and foremost. These are typically retired fire investigators who sort of can um, read the patterns on the ground, the burn patterns and things like that uh, to see sort of where the fire originated from. Um, and then you've got uh, metallurgists who look at the molten metal and the, the, the arc marks on the on the power lines. Um, and so, you know, those are just two of one of, of, of many experts that we use in these cases. Um, and so in years past, liability has fought pretty hard. I'm not saying that it's not fought hard today. Uh, the biggest difference, I would say, you know, and it probably doesn't just impact the wildfire litigation space, but other space as well, is that we've got more cameras and things like that, that, you know, we can see this stuff. Um, part of the genesis of the cameras uh, was not for, hey, help, let's help the lawyers prove their case. Um, it's really wildfire prevention. In California, we have a serious problem with that, whether it's uh, a lightning caused fire, whether it's a camper that you know made a mistake, or whether it's a private utility company. Um, and so these cameras um, help us, frankly, triangulate, at least from a location standpoint, because typically you've got you know, a, a security camera from a, a, you know, a parking lot or something like that that we can use to kind of pick, fix one point. Then you've got a wildfire camera in another point. And, uh, you know, another camera somewhere else and folks that are much smarter than me are able to put that sort of together and try and at least sort of narrow the scope down. So 
In terms of defenses, I mean, number one, it's, it's, Hey, we didn't do it. Um, you know, that's sort of the, the big defense that, that, that comes up. Um, and then number two, there's some more nuanced stuff that, that can come up from time to time. Um, in terms of triggering that inverse condemnation liability I spoke about, mm-hmm. um, one big aspect of that is proving uh, an element of it, which is public use. Um, and there are nuanced cases where, for example, a power line uh, served you know, a single home or um, a small community. And so uh, defendants will try to argue that the public use element hasn't been satisfied to trigger inverse condemnation. Instead, this was a line that only served one home. And so um, you don't get sort of all the benefits of, of liability. But again, you've got you know, literally some of the best lawyers in the country on the other side that are going to fight hard for, for the public utilities. Right. So I guess, you know, when I, when I ask about the, the biggest challenges in bringing these cases, would you say that the, the evidentiary aspect of it showing that this was caused by uh, negligence or failure to maintain, would you say that's the biggest or what are, what are, what are the biggest challenges is what I should ask. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, you, you've got it. proving liability is hard. I mean, in, in many situations, frankly, um, the reason that these fires start and, and they, they start in remote locations, you know, um, the, there's a current fire in California that I think is just now uh, reaching almost 100 percent containment called the Dixie Fire that started in a very remote location. Um, we're alleging, you know, that pg e may be involved and there's the subject of a lot of questioning right now by, by Judge Alsop in, in a federal proceeding. Um, but putting that aside, I mean, these these can start in remote locations. And so there isn't always a camera like I talked about. Um, right. And so it's getting experts to sort of a, a, a difficult place in terms of geography and things like that. But the flip side of that is the technology is getting better. You know, we're using drone flights and things like that to try to figure out, you know, what caused this fire. Uh, again, you've got this multitude of experts, um, you know, metallurgists, um, some of the smartest electrical engineers in the world um, who are working. So I I would say that's right. I think the biggest challenges in bringing these cases is that. Um, And then the flip side of that, you know, representing public entities, um, we have very unique damages. Um, Our clients are not, it's it's not always as as simple and it's not to any in any way downplay what the individual plaintiffs go through, but um, a home has sort of a, a standard fair market value. You can kind of work with that stuff. But how do you value the loss of a park or something like that to a community? Um, And so we and our expert team believe that we've come up with creative uh, ways in articulating those damages um, to help justify uh, the settlements that that our our clients have received. And, and, you know, our county council and all of the members of the the counties and cities um, work extremely hard with our team to put together these complex damage models um, so that we can justify asking PG&E or Southern California Edison uh, to, to pay them for, for their losses. Right. Okay. So can you give me some highlights on, on how some of these cases have turned out for you? You've been involved in quite a, in quite a number of them. Yeah, for the most part, you know, um, as I mentioned, they're, they're very hotly litigated. Um, you know, mm-hmm. first and foremost, we're trying to figure out liability. Um, that's the, the focus of it. And as I mentioned, the subrogation group, the individual plaintiffs, the public entity teams work together, I think, well um, to sort of sort that out. Um, that's kind of the, the big thing. And so you've got a ton of depositions of first responders, um, any eyewitnesses, um, and certainly, you know, the experts are, are heavily involved 
you know, almost day one. In fact, um, we send out an expert team to any fire that we suspect is utility caused. Um, and they start sort of digging the ground because the geography changes so quickly. You've got, you know, plant life that starts growing back. And this is evidence. This is stuff that we've got to document and make sure is preserved so that, you know, cases, as we know, take a long time so that when we're in front of a judge, in front of a jury, potentially, um, we've got the evidence there to show and prove our case. Um, in terms of how they've played out, though, they, they do sort of, in, in, in our experience, at least recently, um, reach a tipping point where I think the defendants look at their potential exposure. Um, and as I've mentioned, their, their lawyers are very sophisticated and have worked um, with our clients, the public entities, and some of the individual plaintiffs we represent to find uh, fair resolution for their claims um, and make sure that these folks are compensated. I think there have been cases where um, you know, I'll say the cause of the fire is a little more obvious and uh, the focus to the credit of the defendants has been on, okay, well, how can we get fair compensation? And, and that's the rub that we're supposed to have. That's the fight we're supposed to have. You know, what are the damages here? Um, so, like I said, I think that, you know, um, these cases, again, typically with our ability to better prove these cases more recently um, have resulted in resolution. Um, there's going to be cases where we can't agree on damages and things like that. And, you know, perhaps it goes to trial. Uh, but for the most part, we have not seen these um, go all the way to trial in the last few years. Okay. Why is that? Do you think they, you, they tend to find, you tend to reach a resolution without doing that? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that for the most part, um, you know, the public utilities sort of understand their exposure. Um, and I think that the good lawyers on our side, um, there's hundreds of them that represent all these individuals, the subrogation folks, the public entities. Um, I think we find sort of a fair number to get to. Um, and frankly, I think one of the big reasons that we're able to do this is the power of that inverse condemnation cause of action, which sort of levels the playing field and gives the defendants um, some pause because you can get attorney's fees and expert costs on your property damages. And so um, I think it's doing exactly what it intended to, which is to sort of protect uh, those that are in a weaker position to absorb the risks associated with a public infrastructure, like providing power. Yeah. Um, so I think it's doing exactly what it's supposed to. When, when I, uh, I used to write about uh, auto safety cases and, you know, the Ford Pinto explosion and things like that. And, and what lawyers used to say t to me was also, if you go to trial, if you go to a jury with a case involving a fire, um, that's that's terrifying to everybody. So I would just wonder if you think with the defendants, do they think, you know, I really don't want to go to in front of a jury with a case involving such a massive fire? I think that's probably true. And I mean, the power of the media the last few years has been huge. Um, and I think that, you know, it used to be a thing where in California, you'd know about the wildfires, but now I've got friends all over the country saying, oh my gosh, you know, is this another utility caused fire? So there's kind of an education piece. Um, and, and, and to be frank, I think some of the, the juries in these communities are upset, um, rightfully mm -hmm. so. You know, this has been, unfortunately, sort of a, a yearly event now for the last few years. Right. And so, um, again, these are extremely good defense lawyers. They know um, exposure. They understand sort of the bigger picture here. Um, mm -hmm. I can't obviously get in their head, but I would imagine that's a strong consideration. Right, right. I mean, you talk about the media of all things, you know, I, I, I'm, 
you know, I see these pictures of the, these massive fires, and these firefighters just, you know, just exhausted working forever trying to put these things out. I've had friends who've done that. And uh, the one that stuck out with me from last week of all things, there was a kitten that was charred. He was alive. <laughs> but I mean, I mean, it's just like, it's in your head. It's like, oh my God, kittens too. But I mean, it's, it's horrible. It's, it's people, it's property, it's all your belongings. I mean, people are just getting, you know, they just lose everything. It's just such a, you know, I don't know, just as a, an individual thinking about it, if I were on a jury, it'd be hard not to, it'd be hard to put that kind of thing out of my mind. That's right. And I mean, it's interesting on a macro scale, you're watching the news. And sometimes what happens when you see it over and over, we know this, you get desensitized to it a little bit. But when you do bring it down to that granular level, as you said, kind of jokingly with a kitten, you're like, gosh, this is, it's, it's extremely personal to have your home burned down and displaced for years. um, Because, you know, the problem in California is when, when these happen, unfortunately, you have not one or five homes that burn down, but tens of thousands of homes. And there's only so many contractors that can come around and rebuild. And so it's not something where you get back up on your feet in three, four months. Um, you know, so it's a very personal thing. Like you said, um, now in California, I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone that either hasn't lost their home in wildfire or certainly knows someone that has. And yeah. so from a jury appeal standpoint, I think that's something that the defendants certainly consider. Yeah. Yeah. I was just visiting a friend in Western Montana and we drove through some of the areas that were on fire there. And it's just miles of, uh, just looks like burnt toothpicks just sticking up out of the ground. And, um, and after college, I worked in the forest service for a short time on a, I was, I was just a laborer on a survey crew for the timber roads and what they would, what they were doing, obviously they were treating the forest. I'm probably oversimplifying it, but like a giant farm. So they would clear cut, uh, whole sections of it, which I, I which makes me wonder what, what are the big forest management uh, techniques that go on? What what would people do to uh, what would the government or companies do to to better manage a forest? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's some really simple stuff. So, folks that live in rural areas in California would know this. Um, you know, firefighters will their local fire department will come around and make sure they're clearing brush uh, because that stuff just goes up like a you know tinder. It, it's the mm-hmm. best thing to sort of ignite these fires. Um, from a management standpoint, I mean, the, the easiest thing to do, and it's much easier said than done, because as you mentioned, Brett, we are talking about millions of miles of infrastructure, is just make sure that these trees are nowhere near power lines in these remote areas. Um, to PG&E's credit, they've recently talked, I think it was in the last six months, about putting in, um, gosh, tens of billions of dollars into undergrounding power lines and making things safer. Um, and so... I think that, that, you know, with our vast sort of differing landscape that we've got in California, um, from a management standpoint, that's something that, that, that can be done. Um, it just requires the focus of the company in terms of ensuring that the money that they spend goes towards that. And at the end of the day, that's the reason we bring these lawsuits, right? You know, that's why lawyers exist is the checks and balances, and so, it, you know, our view on the plaintiff side would be that these companies put profits over people. We've heard that before for far too long. And hopefully the pendulum is now swinging with this pressure. Um, and then from a government standpoint, a state government standpoint, um, there has to be more resources sort of dedicated to to doing the proactive stuff that you, you were seeing in terms of cutting back things and, mm-hmm. and, and making sure that um, our, our landscape stays healthy. 
Um, again, these are part of nature to be fair in terms of wildfires. That's not a secret. I'm not, you know, there's no secret sauce there, but, um, it's just finding that balance with the changing plant life that we've got, you know, the differing kinds of plant regrowth that we get after a fire. Um, and so it's, 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 you know, for us, it does really take a village, Mm -hmm. um, and in California where we're seeing these year in and year out and now expanding up to Oregon, as you mentioned, and other places, um, it's something that we've got to really focus our efforts on. I've always been curious how, um, uh, I mean, you're not a giant firm and uh, I just wonder how firms organize like this. So I guess there's a lot of you're working with, but you're working with Baron and Bud. Uh, on Which this. is a giant firm. <laughs> that is a giant firm. Okay. So, but, uh, but you're, you, you specialize in this area, but tell me about your practice. Yeah. So um, historically, you know, at least over the last few years, my practice has focused on mass torts, whether it's, you know, pharmaceutical or medical devices. Um, and more recently, these environmental type mass tort cases. Um, and I've done wildfires dating back to when I used to do subrogation work and learn from some of the best um, in that group. Um, so it, it, it's interesting because um, we, we have partnered with Baron and Bud, um, who is by far one of the leading firms in the country, just period. Um, and then on top of that, they've got a really robust decades long uh, public entity practice where they've represented public entities in all sorts of different oil spills, um, you know, various different disasters. And so marrying that with some of the knowledge that, you know, I had in the wildfire space, um, we've really kind of put together what we feel is a great team to represent public entities and individuals um, in these fires. Um, you know, when you're talking about the public entities, uh, that's something that requires um, sort of a different knowledge base and, and certainly having Baron and Bud their long history representing public entities has been tremendously um, useful because this is what they do. They know uh, the pain points of county council and the, the folks that work in the communities, um, and they're able to kind of help navigate those and make sure that they uh, are supported in terms of putting together the right teams, having the right document polls. Um, and sometimes, you know, the public entities we represent are the agencies that actually fight the fire. And so sometimes we're almost having to defend depositions because the Ventura County uh, Fire Department, for example, uh, was one that helped fight the Thomas fire. Um, and so you have situations like that. Um, in terms of organizing, um, I don't want to say it's just like any other mass tort case, but you do have thousands of plaintiffs um, when we represent individual folks and they all need sort of attention and it's a little different than the pharmaceutical stuff because, again, not to downplay that, but this is in, in some respects more immediate in the sense that I don't have a home to sleep in tonight. Um, other folks who have the pharmaceutical or medical device cases have an ailment. And again, it's not to downplay that because they're living with pain and suffering every day. But these folks don't have a place to go sleep. Uh, and in, in some times we've got folks that are, um, you know, lo lower socioeconomic scales. and so. They've got real challenges um, finding housing and, and they're homeless. Um, so it, it's, it's really finding that sort of um, ability of the firms to organize around getting these folks immediate relief at the outset, whether it's through FEMA and some of these other um, organizations that can provide some immediate relief, you know, shelters were put up, things like that. Um, so it's a little different, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, definitely having, you know, Baron and Bud's sort of big machine behind us, 
leading the charge um, has been tremendously helpful. And it allows the lawyers who work on the litigation to kind of focus in on, hey, let's prove liability. So, you know, we, we've my team, uh, along with the folks at Baron and Bud, you know, focus our efforts on that side. We gotcha. Okay. Well, Ed Diab, thank you very much for spending time with me today. This is a, an important area of law and you're right in the middle of it. So thank you for sharing your insights. Yeah. Thanks so much for shedding some light on this. Um, I really appreciate being on here. It's really, like I said, an honor and pleasure to talk to you today. Once again, you've been listening to Ed Diab, founding partner of Dixon Diab and Chambers. This is the Emerging Litigation Podcast, a co-production of HB Litigation Conferences, Custom Legal Content, Fast Case, Law Street Media, Docket Alarm, and the Journal on Emerging Issues in Litigation. This is Tom Hagee with HB Litigation Conferences. If you are interested in writing to me about the podcast, drop me a note at editor at litigationconferences.com. Mm-hmm.